You're listening to Through the Darkness. I'm Chris Correa, reading an essay entitled Leaving Home. I hope you enjoy. For the people and places we once called home. I'm writing from Seattle, Washington, almost two years since I began entertaining graduate school, the main reason I moved here, and four years before the thought of leaving home first shook me awake. Let me start with the latter. Holy, holy, holy. It was a Wednesday in November during my last year of college, which began with me waking up painfully hungover into a nightmare I wish so badly not to be true. Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. Hate had seemingly cast its long shadow over a nation that already proved to have no problem leaving its people of color pleading for breath on the concrete, even during what was then considered to be our first post-racial era under our first black president. But this time, the tattered veil was torn in two, and the ground quaked with reverberating victory for bigotry, intolerance, and provocation. Prolonged months of fear-mongering and political arson disguised as presidential campaigning brought what seemed unlikely and impossible into reality. I glanced toward the clock that seemed to mock me more aggressively than usual for running late to my college's morning chapel, threw on whatever clothes I could find, and bolted to my car to get there on time. The drive made me queasy, but I hoped today's worship would alleviate this heaviness, this heartache, this hangover I wished would go away. Come to find out, I would be one of many religious folks at my college who treated our services and scriptures like medication to inoculate us from the present moment we were too afraid to face, the lingering doubts we were too concerned might lead us forever wandering. Like patients crammed in an emergency room in the middle of a pandemic, not unlike the one that would capsize our way of life years into this new presidency, more students packed our tiny circular chapel than I had ever seen on a Wednesday chapel service. We clamored for some sort of promise that all would be well, even though I think we knew in our hearts that we would never go back to the way things were. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The head chaplain begins from the book of Romans, her voice shaky, grave. Love one another with mutual affection and outdo one another in showing honor. How do we honor something that seems so incredibly evil? What love can we show to those who must answer for an actual choice they made that dramatically affects the lives of those that our teachings call us to genuinely love, not rationalizing over notions of total depravity or eternal hell? The chaplain concludes her scripture reading, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. She then jumps into prayer for our newly elected president and for the healing of this wounded nation. But I can hardly see through the haze I feel shrouding the room. Fellow students around me, hands lifted high, begin to sing, Holy, 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 pleading to believe that what they had been told and taught since birth was real. God was good and God was listening even through the darkness. But that didn't 
seem true. Their words seem empty to me. Worship is hollow today and may likely be for years to come. Frankly, I just don't feel like faking it anymore. But through the haze, as my distracted eyes dart around the room, a bright red in a sea of sullen faces catches my attention. It belongs to another college student, not much younger than me, with hands raised and eyes closed, singing holy, 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 while donning a red cap embroidered with Make America Great Again. I'm fuming when I see it. It was only months before that I sat tableside with the family in Mexico, watching this president-elect promise to put an end to the gangsters and the drugs and the violence from pouring into our communities in his nomination acceptance speech. I'll never forget the fear I saw in this father's eyes as he listened attentively and rocked his daughter back and forth, presumably thinking of his brother still living in the United States as an undocumented immigrant. I saw the same eyes in Latinx daughters and sons across television screens on election night as they feared what would become of their padres or tios or abuelos, whom the new administration would more than likely deport or in cage, as we would come to find out. I thought about my other friends in Mexico who bombarded me that morning with messages asking the same question, is it true? It was, and it was all so overwhelming. Chapel recessed after what felt like a lifetime, and I collapsed into my chair, throwing my head into my hands. I began to weep, no semblance of what to think or feel or even believe anymore. As I recognize that my nightmare, which I recognize now may not be your nightmare, was our reality, something broke in me that had felt fragile for a long time. I wanted nothing to do with a faith whose adherence, like the student in the red hat, turned out in droves for this president. I would remember this year as the one in which our country seemingly vomited on itself and then asked who made the mess. It would usher in a haze that would only get starker and murkier as the years progressed. And as for me, it would be my first time since becoming a Christian that I wondered if I even believed in God anymore. That's when the leaving started. Alone in this. Before my move to Seattle, I have only really left home twice. Once when I was a toddler moving from a suburb of Atlanta to one near Chicago where I grew up. And then again as an 18-year-old moving to Grand Rapids to start college. But as I have had time to reflect on my journey out here, I theorize that every move has brought with it a grieving process. Leaving home isn't easy. In her book, On Death and Dying, psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross first introduced the model of the five stages of grief used to initially help terminally ill patients come to terms with their eventual death. The first stage is denial, the belief that what has been practiced or diagnosed is somehow mistaken or misinformed. Then follows anger or frustration, like a mask worn to hide deep emotional wounds. Bargaining comes next. The proverbial deals with the devil for a different hand than you were dealt to regain some sense of control. 
However, when the sobriety of loss finally hits, depression sinks in, much more quietly than the first three stages. Last, according to the model, comes acceptance, the embrace of the inevitable, if even uncertain. It's important to remember that the Keebler-Ross model of grief is not a prescription for how every person navigates through loss. Again, Keebler-Ross developed these stages for people who were dying, not for their relatives. What's more, new research in grief actually steers us from thinking about stages of loss with finite ends. More on that later. But in my life, I consider these stages of grief to be helpful scaffolding for understanding the emotional architecture I built over the past few years, especially related to my leaving home. Learning to fit into a different context while still having a foot in your former one is in itself like a kind of death you have to go through to usher in something new. With such an end, then, come the many faces in the many stages of grief. I can remember the moments when I most fervently denied my eventual, inevitable departure from Grand Rapids, even after accepting the offer to attend graduate school in Seattle. The feeling came in waves every time I chose to sunbathe on the balcony of my old apartment, believing that summer would never end, instead of coordinating my new living situation, selling my furniture, or packing up for my move. It's funny that my denial would even rub off on my former roommates, who would pretend with me that I still wasn't leaving. For them, it came in waves and side comments, like the threat by one of them to slash my tires so I wouldn't be able to leave. Of course, it was all out of love. Nobody slashed any tires. But it seems to me that our feelings of loss often bleed into each other when we experience some form of another's plight. Maybe that's also where empathy grows. Similarly, I can remember the moments of intense frustration I felt with the world in the tumultuous months leading to my departure. Why won't people just wear a damn mask? Why can't we all just acknowledge that black lives do matter? Why would any rational person think fully reopening a church or even your favorite restaurant is a good idea? Why hasn't the local government taken more aggressive measures to counteract racial violence? Why does the current administration insist on downplaying everything save for conspiracy theories and television ratings? Although these questions have their place, I think they masked my more complicated fears of leaving and no longer being around to pick up the broken pieces in the city I was leaving behind. Perhaps each of my questions could more accurately boil down to the looming doubt I felt about whether my city, my people, would remember me if I just let go. Oh, and let's not forget the bargaining stage. I laugh when I think about how many wild dreams and schemes I concocted before I left. Whether it was vying for jobs for which I was vastly underqualified or convincing my roommates to buy a house together in San Diego, I worked tirelessly to move mountains that simply would not budge. In hindsight, I realized this bargaining was my attempt to evade my creeping fears about leaving home by preserving the best of what I had. When I puffed my chest and tried to rig the deck in my favor, I was actually afraid that I would be the one left behind, even as I departed. Similarly, Wendell Berry writes in The Unforeseen Wilderness, 
Always in big woods, when you leave familiar ground and step off into a new place, there will be, along with feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is an experience of our essential loneliness, for nobody can discover the world for anybody else. Denial, anger, bargaining, these were all stages of grief I went through because of how scared I was that life as I knew it would soon be coming to an end. The discovery of something new was my choice and mine alone, which I resented. With the sobering realization of my loneliness came the embrace of dreadful uncertainty that I would indeed be leaving home, and nobody would be coming with me. A Future Shock In the years that followed the faithful chapel service after the election, the questions I started to ask about God took me through heaven and hell and everywhere in between. Eventually, I found myself working for a church composed mostly of good-hearted and well-intentioned conservatives who cared for me well despite our ideological differences. In the early years, I put so much pressure on myself to have everything figured out about myself, my beliefs, and the confidence I could project in my new position. But the creeping feelings of doubt I had often compartmentalized always found their way back to the surface. Granted, no pastor or spiritual mentor had ever modeled for me what processing through doubt looked like. It would be months before I would hear the words of the famous Dear Abby, who once replied back to her reader, The lack of faith is not doubt, it is certainty. These words soothed my nerves until the doubt regressed and the vicious cycle started all over again. Eventually, my theological scaffolding deteriorated under the immense weight of such questions. I began to experience what Neil Postman and Charles Weingartner describe as future shock. The tectonic shifts in my worldview confronted me with the notion that what I had been taught to believe no longer existed or seemed relevant. My reality became a ghost that either disappeared on contact or lingered to haunt me, unearthing more doubt and despair than I could handle. I could barely follow my thoughts to the conclusion that I may come out on the other side, whatever that meant, not believing in God anymore. What would happen to my career, my relationships, my future, in whom or what would I find hope or meaning or purpose? At this point, I pictured myself as the writer Julian Barnes, who in an interview once said with famous precision, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Would I suffer the same fate? I think I was grieving the loss of something I couldn't articulate, something that lingered from that chapel service years ago because I had never learned the proper mechanisms to deal with the seismic shifts I was experiencing. Instead of preparing for the storm, I naively hoped that my spiritual forecast would clear and my faith would be made stronger. Sounds a lot like denial, frustration, and bargaining to me. Grief, I never acknowledged even when the storm came through the haze and threatened to unravel me completely. The Holy Nudge Depression is a term I use with caution because I'm acutely aware of how people can misconstrue it and stigmatize others who go through it. So let's get on the same page about how I'm using depression in this context to describe a stage of grief. Depression is a negative affective state and can take many forms. 
from general unhappiness to lethargy, isolation, and despair. When we experience grief, particularly relating to loss, we often go through what feels like depression, signaled by changes of eating or sleeping habits, lessened interest in people or places we once loved, and even difficulty mustering the energy to simply keep breathing. Let me be clear here that I think depression as a part of the grieving process does not necessarily correlate with having a clinical condition like major depressive disorder. In a person's grief experience, depression is natural, even if unique to their context or situation. Clinical conditions of depression are longer sustained, often hereditary or genetic, and often involve frequent doubt of self-worth. Working through grief-induced depression looks different than the medical intervention needed to treat clinical depression, such as medication or psychotherapy. In my life, I think I've wrestled with both. My process of questioning my beliefs unearthed way more profound personal doubts with which I had never come to terms. I should have seen it coming that I wouldn't be able to handle it all alone. Even now, it's hard to write about and remember the weight of this despair. I enter the haze again and my heart feels heavy. Eventually, I experienced what I would most accurately describe as a depressive episode. It's happened before, sporadically, throughout my life. When it does, my body shuts down, and I cannot summon the physical strength to get out of bed, let alone carry on with my day. The experience feels like paralysis. You cannot move while you remain trapped in the darkness, wrapping its arms all around you. You're just stuck, barely breathing. In my experience, ideating that life should end here if it's destined to stay like this often feels like the only way out. The episode I'm describing happened almost two years ago when the pressure of everything I was wrestling with finally cracked me wide open. It wasn't the worst one I had experienced, but it was alarming enough to convince me that I needed help. However, more convincing was the voicemail that a friend sent to me, unbeknownst to her that I was in such a terrible place that day. I just happened to talk to a couple people today who were all just like, yeah, I texted Chris, but I haven't heard back from him. And it got me thinking, huh, I wonder how Chris is doing. Maybe he's just busy today or whatever. But I just wanted to make sure you were doing okay and you weren't like living inside of your head and feeling crappy about things that have happened. If anything, I wanted to call and tell you that you're great and I love you and I think we have some great days ahead of us. Through the darkness, it is imperative to keep close to the people who will remind us that we are worth the help we need. As for this friend, well... You know who you are, and hopefully you understand my gratitude for which I can barely find words. Your friendship has been life-changing. That week, I calmly told my people, who were so incredibly supportive, what had happened. Then I reached out to a counseling practice that had been recommended to me for years, These were significant steps forward to get the help I needed, which happens when your friends remind you that you're worth it. Please 
listen to that holy nudge telling you to make that call or shoot that text when you think of someone. Even if you never hear from that person, you also never know what they might need to hear. A grief observed. Fast forward a few years to my last month in Grand Rapids. I had my final appointment with my therapist, a kind man who frequently rerouted me in my present awareness by asking, what's coming up for you now? And what are you noticing? In our almost two years of meeting together every week since my episode, he only ever wanted me to see my significance, not because of anything I had done or needed to do, but for being who I am. Our last video call brings forth parting words of immense gratitude from both of us. Thank you, my therapist says, for being brave and entrusting me with your story. I profusely thank him back for his wisdom and how he arranged his office that I'll never end up sitting in again due to COVID-19. Inhabiting this physical space with him is one of the many things I lament about leaving home this year. The profound and devastating loss we have experienced mark this year unlike any in our lifetime. Coincidentally, I feel more broken open and messy in our virtual appointments than when my therapist and I were meeting in person. In a session just weeks before, I violently cried while lamenting through my denial, frustration, and depression about my leaving. And then again, weeks later, I wept with the same intensity over the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the most seismic racial unrest that this country has experienced since the civil rights era. For so many of us this year, ordinary and tragic losses have been too innumerable to count. But these losses have also brought with them a rawness. In Dr. Angela Cook-Jackson's words, a fascinating intimacy with visceral transparency that has expanded conversations about collective grief to a national level. Today, it's enough to just acknowledge that hurt sometimes outweighs hope. You know, my therapist continues, like he often did, I think of your journey of leaving home as the culmination of the hard work you've been doing over the past year and a half. I think he's right. Leaving home is how I've grown through such profound personal loss over the years. Most of what I'm leaving behind is good and has been necessary for my formation and personhood. But my journey has led me elsewhere, following a holy nudge. And learning to become everything we already are is the journey that continues. Are we still talking about my move, my faith in God, or our collective suffering? I think all of it and none of it. The way we do one thing is the way we do everything. So we part ways for the last time. And tears well up in my eyes as I reflect on the years I've spent working through my grief, anger, sadness, and joy. It is then that I pass through the final stage of grief, which Kibler-Ross describes as acceptance, a reckoning with a leaving home that seemed unlikely and impossible and is now reality. But perhaps acceptance can be better described as 
comfort with the things we cannot change, the contradictions we cannot solve. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once put it this way, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. On the path of leaving home, grief becomes our lifeline, our signpost, our only way out to wherever the journey will take us from there. The sixth phase. Now I write from my rooftop balcony in my new home, Seattle. This morning I woke up to clear skies, a cool Pacific breeze, and watchful mountains guarding my periphery. Every morning, everything in this new world takes one unanimous breath from just above the concrete to welcome me here and now, home. What are you noticing? I cannot help but picture Frodo Baggins as he writes from his desk overlooking the Shire, his paradise at the end of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. And thus it was, we found ourselves looking upon a familiar sight. We were home. But how do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on when in your heart you begin to understand there is no going back? There are some things that time cannot mend, some hurts that go too deep that have taken hold. If we always carry our wounds with us, what hope do we have of moving forward? I think most of us try to bypass the holy process of grief instead of entering through the darkness and meeting it head on. Just as grief's wounds never fully heal, so too do the ghosts of our past never fully leave us. These ideas may seem contradictory to our American ideals of exceptionalism, problem-solving, and perseverance. Ingrained into our national psyche is the sense that we can overcome any hardship through hard work, which is not the wrong mentality to have, especially when systems need to be corrected, diseases need to be cured, and politicians need to be voted out of office. But what do we do when problems arise that no amount of effort or willpower will completely solve? What about the wounds with layers so thick that they will take years to peel back? Or when we're still looping through the same stages of grief interchangeably and uncontrollably? I think these stages operate more like phases without linearity that come and go as they please. Maybe you find yourself wishing you didn't have to work through them over and over again, that you could just accept your losses and move forward. But when we learn to live with grief and transform those experiences into something beautiful or helpful in the long run, we finally come home. Grief expert David Kessler expands on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's original work to include a sixth phase on the journey through loss, meaning. In his book, Finding Meaning, Kessler writes that our search for meaning helps us uncover more than just the pain of what we've been through. Grief takes a seat at the table with gratitude, joy, sadness, frustration, hope, peace, and everything else that makes us who we are. Let me be clear that our search for meaning does not come by way of spiritual platitudes. The last thing I want to hear after I've gone through something terrible is that God meant for me to go through it and to learn something. 
It is unloving to read divine purpose into pain so great that it would be better left unexplained. Again, let me be clear. Your loss, your grief, your leaving home is not some test, lesson, gift, or blessing. Loss is something that happens to you. Meaning is something we choose, which is unique to our context and situation. Your search for meaning may lead you on a very different path than mine or what you might have even pictured for yourself. But the choice remains each of ours as to what kind of meaning we will choose to create. As we work through our grief, we become what author Henry Nouwen describes as wounded healers, guides along the journey that bring hope to those who wander in despair. And as we continuously work through what once haunted us, we may find the freedom to release these poltergeists so they can become holy ghosts. Our newfound freedom and healing demonstrate to fellow wanderers that life after death is possible, that you can be reborn and still bear scars of what once was, resurrected and wounded all at the same time. To the mountaintop. Whatever leaving home means for you, whatever characterizes your current journey through loss, I want to say first that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you're going through. I'm sorry for how hard things have been. I'm sorry for who or what you lost. And I think it's crucial to the leaving process to carve out space to honor and mourn what we have lost. To me, other notions of closure are elusive and overrated because deep down, we know the things we carry will always be a part of our stories. We cannot ever fully move on even if or after we have chosen to let go. But when we create something or somewhere commemorative to honor those losses together, something magical happens. We're more comfortable talking about loss and we heal together as we give our wounds some fresh air. New doors open while old ones close. Mourning turns into dancing. Tears turn into laughter, then maybe back into tears again. We honor the people and places we once called home by letting the weight of loss put us in perspective, so that when we move forward, we still make space to grieve along the way. So, I'd like to end with a grief ceremony, if you will, an exercise that dear friends once taught me that I now offer up to you, a journey to the mountaintop. Imagine for a moment that you are hiking to the peak of a mountain. The sun has risen again, and the air is crisp and gets thinner on your way through the higher altitude. With the snow-capped mountaintop finally in sight, you pick up a small boulder one you find along the path. But this rock you carry has substantial weight, enough to tire you out as you keep hiking. Think of this rock like a burden you carry, a past that haunts you, the grief you cannot escape. As you keep climbing, the weight almost becomes too overwhelming to bear. But your gaze has been so fixated on this rock that you have been looking down instead of out. When you look up, You see me, carrying a boulder, breathing deeply, along with so many others scattered along the trail. You are not alone in this. Together, we climb up to the mountain's peak, each carrying our rock, our loss, our pain, our grief observed. 
The mountaintop finds you higher than you've ever been in silence that radiates peace and wisdom. You settle on a place to sit and re-examine your rock. What's coming up for you now? What does your grief mean to you? What would it be like to let go and never forget? When you're ready, you throw your rock down the mountain with whatever strength you have left to muster. The travelers around you follow suit. One by one, your journey ends, and you head down the mountain, leaving behind what you've carried with you for so long you forgot what it feels like to be free. Now, your new journey begins. And why would you ever go back to the way things were? I know the world is dark right now. Our rulers and principalities are wreaking havoc on our systems and ways of life, seeking their benefit at the expense of those most forgotten. The haze feels murkier than ever, like a nightmare that just won't end. And the pain of such immeasurable loss looms so heavy over us like the weight of stones we just can't carry anymore. But the ways I have seen people keep working through grief particularly in such grievous times, has inspired me to keep going and growing comfortable with what remains unresolved. So here's to hope for great days ahead of us. May you carve out space to observe your grief wherever it may lead you. May you show up in your life as people show up for you too, the shared knowledge that loss will inform your whole process of healing and transformation. And as you do so, may you find that grace and peace are wholly yours. What homes you leave, what dreams may come.